Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can grab it and, and turn to 1 Peter. It's, it's almost at the very back of your Bible. It's, it's, an, it's a letter, it's an epistle written by one of the apostles, Peter, and we'll talk about what that means in a second. If you don't have a Bible, some on the ends of your row, you could also just Google 1 Peter, and we're just going to be looking at the first few verses of that today. 1 Peter, but before we read it, I just want to tell you about my youngest son, Owen. I have two boys, four and a half year old and a one year old, and as you might expect, my one year old um, is, is not as tall as me. In fact, he's not as tall as most human beings, and so homes aren't built for him. You see what I'm saying? The countertops are a little bit too high for him. The doorway's wider than he needs. The toilet just tall enough that all he can do is stick his arm in, which he does quite frequently, <laughs> not knowing that if his older brother forgot to flush, which happens a lot, he could find treasure. He thinks it's just like the bath. So what I'm saying is that the world of our house was not created for him, right? It wasn't designed for him. And so he can be often disoriented. He sees these high walls of the cabinets and the countertop. And and, and this was brought to my attention uh, just this week because for Christmas, my parents got us a gift and they got us a a Google Home. And, And I was told that Google Home is better than Alexa, by somebody that works for Amazon. So I asked my parents, if you're going to get me one, get me a Google Home. I just want to say that because I know we have a lot of Amazon employees. So I did think about it. <laughs> and we got it. And, you know, here's what happens. It's really quite fun. You speak to it, and it does things for you. So, hey, Google, turn on the music. It is a common refrain that's been heard time and time again over the last week and a half. Now, now here's the funny thing. The Google Home is sitting up on one of those countertops in the kitchen right behind the dishwasher. Now, Owen has had something of a love affair with our dishwasher since he was born. He loves to climb into it, mess around in the dishwasher when it's open. And as soon as we put that Google Home just on the countertop on the other side, what we realized is that When we say, hey, Google, turn on the music, he thinks we're talking to the dishwasher, and the dishwasher begins to sing. (laughs) And so he just stands in front of the dishwasher, and he just goes, it's amazing. And and when we realized that's what he was doing, we thought, this is fantastic. Let's never tell him that that's not a real person, and he'll maybe develop a relationship, he'll load the dishwasher, unload the dishwasher, it could be a great thing. Now, here's what this highlights. Having limited perspective can be very disorienting. And what we'll see in the book of Peter is, is this is the same thing that's true of those people who follow Jesus in a world that is no longer ordered and designed for them. It's disorienting. There's two kinds of people that we had in mind when we started Sedaris Church. And both kinds of people can experience disorientation from being in a culture that's not their own. Both of these types of people. The first type of person is the person who either did not grow up in a church 
culture or church world or somebody who did grow up as a Christian in the church world who has left it and now they come back into it and it, it just doesn't feel quite right. Something feels off. It feels very uncomfortable to them, disorienting. They're not sure what's going on. So, so whether you grew up in the church or you didn't grow up in the church, you can come to church again and feel like, what's going on here? Why, why is some man standing up there talking for 45 to 50 minutes about a book that was written 2,000 years ago and we're singing these songs to this Jesus? It can be disorienting. And I just want you to know, we started Sedaris Church for you. The second type of person that we started this church for is um, somebody who, inside the church culture, feels very comfortable. It feels like home. It feels normal and safe and secure. But because they live here in this city, a city that, if you think about the Metroplex, depending on where you live in the Metroplex, 85 to 99% of the people do not believe that Jesus is worth worship and honor and praise. And more like 99% of the people in this neighborhood, in this part of the Metroplex. So out there, outside of the church culture, it's very disorienting. You feel very uncomfortable. You feel like a cultural outsider. So whether you feel like a cultural outsider outside of the walls of the church, or you feel like a cultural outsider inside the walls of the church, 1 Peter will help you know how to persevere. So wherever you come from, whatever feels normal to you, I just want you to know, welcome. (laughs) Let's go through this book and see what Peter has to say to that feeling. Now just speaking now about the second group, people who church culture, Christian culture, talking about Jesus, singing about Jesus feels normal to you, but outside of the church, you feel like a stranger at times. I want to say these few things to you. When you feel like your values, your vision for life, your priorities are so foreign to the dominant culture, and you feel that disorientation, and it makes you question, how can this be right? How should I be living? How should I be acting? If I am a Christian, but this is the culture, this is the atmosphere. I want you to listen closely as we study Peter's letter because you aren't the first to feel that way. Christians have been feeling this way for 2,000 years. So you can take a deep breath. And know that not only are you not alone in this room, but you're not alone in the history of God's people. This is a common feeling. These are common questions to be asking. How do I live in a culture when that culture feels like not my culture? I I experienced this uh, phenomenon. This phenomenon happens all the time. I mean, you can walk into a party... uh, and not know anybody and feel that disorientation. Uh, You can go to a new job, the first day of work, you could feel this. I I felt all of those main ways of feeling it all at once when I grew up in the Seattle area, and after college, I decided, 
chose to move to Dallas, Texas. Not a lot of Seattleites choose to move to Dallas, Texas. Mountains aren't as high. The humidity is matched with 100-degree weather. Why would you do this? But I did it, and when I moved there, uh, a few things happened. I went immediately from, in the general culture, kind of understanding how things worked, to feeling like a cultural outsider. Okay? Cowboy boots. Two-stepping. Going two-stepping tonight. What? 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 What is that? Turns out I love to two-step, by the way. So I felt like a cultural outsider. In fact, I moved in with these three guys, and, and there was one person I knew in Dallas, and his next-door neighbor was a group of three guys, all in their 20s, that had an extra room. But it wasn't a bedroom. It was a really big closet. And it was built in the 70s, and so this closet had one giant win- one wall was a giant window to the living room. So literally, what, what, what happened is I was living in a fishbowl in Dallas, Texas, and they would invite their friends over, and, and I'd see them out there in the living room laughing and pointing at my room, and they'd be like, look, there's a Seattleite. <laughs> They'd never seen one before, and they, were, they would watch me. About six months in, I finally got curtains, and um, that was a big day for me. But I was 23 years old, so I didn't mind. So I felt like people really were interested, what is it like to be from Seattle? Seattle's just a few miles past Denver, right? This is what everybody thought. It's like, no, it's quite a ways. You've got to go a few hundred miles past Denver to get all the way up here to Seattle. So I felt like a cultural outsider in the general Texas culture. But at the same time, something really interesting happened because I was a Christian and most of my time in Seattle, being a Christian, I was a minority. But then I moved to Dallas, Texas, and a weird thing happened. I was at work. I was working for a big accounting firm. And, and people would ask me in the workplace, so, do you go to church? And I would look around me because I thought they were trying to trap me, <laughs> steal my job. Because you're not allowed to talk about that in Seattle. But what I found is that to be a Christian in that larger culture was very different than being a Christian in the Seattle culture. So in one sense, although in sort of the Texas culture I felt like an outsider, in another sense, a lot more people were Christian and willing to talk about it, and so in that sense I felt more like an insider. So I was experiencing this dynamic of what does it mean to be a cultural insider, what does it mean to be a cultural outsider, on a number of levels for my first you know, month, two months, three months in Dallas. Eventually, it, I figured it out, how to live in this place. Or in one sense, I wasn't from there, but in another sense, it was becoming my city. You may have had that experience. You may have felt that feeling. And like I said, you might have felt that feeling the first time you came to a Christian church or started hanging out with Christians, or you might have felt that when you moved to Seattle. Maybe you moved from Texas or from the Midwest or from a place where the culture of Seattle is so different. Am I right? It's, it's so different. It's just not the same. And that's just a reality. And so it's that feeling, that feeling of being a fish out of water, a stranger in a foreign land, a God-fearer in a godless place. And Peter will speak to all of that. He'll say, take a deep breath. This is a part of God's plan. This is not too much for him. You can continue to walk with Jesus, be obedient, follow his ways, 
even though you feel so disoriented. That's the book of 1 Peter. So let's, let's get going. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. We're just doing two verses today. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynthia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So who is this Peter, and why is he writing this letter? He's writing a letter, and um, at the end of the book, he'll talk about he's writing the, the letter from Babylon, which is his reference to Rome. He's using an Old Testament allusion to a place foreign to God's people, a place outside of God's hometown, and he calls it Babylon, but he's actually referring to Rome. Peter was one of the apostles of Jesus, and what, what does that mean? That means that he was one of the 12 disciples who Jesus handpicked during his earthly ministry and invited into the inner circle of Jesus and walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus. Peter literally walked on water as he walked towards Jesus outside of the boat. He's, he's experienced some serious things. He was with Jesus at his transfiguration when Jesus brought three of the disciples up to a mountaintop and God the Father revealed the full glory of Jesus. We don't know exactly what this looked like, but he was at these kinds of moments. Peter was the first one to the empty tomb. Peter was the first one to see the resurrected Jesus. Peter is important. If you want to know what Jesus was like, you should talk to Peter. That's what it means to be an apostle. Apostleship, in the Greek word, means sent one. But it's a special title used for those whom Jesus personally sent out as ambassadors for his mission. So when, when we read the scriptures and, and why we study the scriptures is because in the New Testament in particular, that's all the books of the Bible written after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, they are all tied to, either written by or um, informed by an apostle. Because you could come to me and you could ask me, well, what's Jesus like? And I'll tell you. But I don't have first eyewitness history with Jesus. Peter does. So that's why we study his words, the things that he said, because what he says about Jesus is... The word of God. God has set him apart as a special messenger of who this Jesus was. So we look at him knowing that he has had this experience with Jesus, knowing that when he wrote these letters to these churches in these different areas, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and so on, he is writing them under the inspiration of the Spirit of God with firsthand knowledge of who Jesus was. So if you want to know who Jesus is, the best thing to do is go to the apostles and see what they have to say. Okay, So if you're new to, new to the Christian faith or coming back to the Christian faith, the best thing to do is to not listen to what somebody else has to say. Listen to what the apostles have to say about who this Jesus is. Read their words. They are going to point you in the right direction as you, as you seek to know who was this Jesus. So he says, I'm Peter, 
one of the apostles of Jesus Christ, and I'm writing these to you. Who's the you? He calls them elect exiles. Elect exiles. So I'm going to break apart five main phrases in these first two verses to help set the stage for us. And it's really sort of an overview of the whole book, uh, but, but by looking at these first two sentences. The elect exiles. What, what does that mean? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by talking about uh, exile, and then I'm going to talk about elect. And then I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't look at it that way. You should look at it elect first and then exile, but I'm going to do it uh, backwards. What does it mean that they are exiles? Well, it's what we were just talking about. What Peter is saying is, listen, your primary citizenship is not in Rome or in these other cities, which were most of them in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. That's not your primary citizenship. Your primary citizenship is in the kingdom of Jesus. What Jesus did when he came to earth is he inaugurated his kingdom, and he will come back one day and he will set his kingdom up in full, and all other kingdoms will either come underneath the kingdom of Jesus, or they will be wiped away. And so Peter is reminding them, this is not your home. The kingdom you now live in is not your primary citizenship. This, this word exile um, can be hard for us to understand what it's saying, uh, but I think probably the best way to translate it would be, and other translations have it differently, is a uh, resident alien. A resident alien. And here's why I think that's the best translation to help us understand. He's not saying that you should never put down roots in the city in which you live. He's saying, no, you should put down roots there. You should build your family there. You should act as if that is home, but all the while knowing that you are an alien in this land, that this isn't actually your, where you came from or where you will eventually be, but it is your home. It is your temporary home for as long as you live in this life, you are a resident of the place God plants you. Does that make sense? So you are a resident alien. Or you could say a resident immigrant, meaning you, have, you are living in a land that is not your primary citizenship, but it is your home, okay? He's saying that's what you are. And then he says you are elect, which is just another way of saying you are chosen, that God has chosen you for his family, for his kingdom, for salvation, it is not a coincidence. It is not a mistake. He saw this beforehand, as we'll see. He planned that you might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ about his life, death, and his resurrection, that when you hear, heard the gospel, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 100th time, at some point in hearing the gospel, your soul would come alive, you would know that it is true, and that you would begin to follow Jesus. And by following Jesus, he says... That will make you an exile in this land, a resident alien. So he has chosen for you this feeling of disorientation. 
It is not a mistake. And so this is so important. Uh, Don't miss this. So when you feel like being a Christian in this city is disorienting and things aren't lining up and you're thinking in yourself, you're having the thought, God wouldn't want it this way. He wouldn't want me to seem so odd and strange to people. What I'm telling you is, yes, he would. He chose that for you. Now, he doesn't want you to be so weird that people don't want to talk to you. But you will be a resident alien. People will notice that your customs and your habits and your decisions are different than the vast majority. God chose that for you. So your constant wanting to get rid of the feeling of disorientation is you running from the very thing God chose for you. Do you get that? Do you feel that? I know I feel that. First thing I did when I moved to Dallas, got buy some cowboy boots. I don't want people to know that I'm not from here. Bought the wrong kind of boots. <laughs> and they knew, ha! You're from New York or you're from... C- no, oh gosh, don't buy your cowboy boots at Nordstrom. <laughs> serious still have those boots nice boots they fit really well here people are like oh those are those are cool seattle boots <sighs> nordstrom okay so he chose that for you okay so the political economic structures of this world are not they don't make sense to your soul once you begin to follow jesus but, but Peter says, but it's only temporary. This is a temporary situation. Now, why is that so important? Because if you know what it means to be a resident alien, and if Peter's saying, you'll feel like this for the rest of your life, that should make you be like, that sounds really hard. It is. But it's also Temporary. Back to my Dallas days. I went to Dallas working in a public accounting firm, Deloitte, and literally this is their business plan. We'll hire a bunch of people and we'll work them to death for three years. We'll work them. It's not even legal how hard we'll work them because we only need 10% of them to go to the next level. So they work you to death and people do it. And I did it. 70, 80, 90 hour weeks. Why? Because we all knew it was temporary. And once we had this on our resume, we would use it and leverage it for a better job, with better pay, with better work hours. And so, the seagulls flock (laughs) to the accounting firms to get the start of their career because they know it's temporary. You see this? When you know something is temporary, it allows you to be and do things that others who, who aren't sure if it's temporary wouldn't do. And this, this is one of the primary distinctions between those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there is life after death, then it will allow us to be and act in certain ways that make, makes absolutely no sense to people who think this life is all that you've got. And I understand that. And so when I look strange to people for leaving my accounting job and not leveraging it for more pay, but taking a 75% pay cut to take my first ministry job, people looked at me like I was strange. Because I was. I was a stranger to them. I was a resident alien. I looked strange even to myself. 
but I knew this life isn't all that there is. And so I lean in to the discomfort of, of acting in ways contrary to my culture because I know it's for a time. This suffering or this want or this longing, this is temporary. So being an exile is temporary. It is but a blip in an eternity with God and his kingdom. And if you don't understand that, everything that Peter is about to say in this letter will sound so odd to you that you, you won't be able to believe that God would call you to that if you don't believe that this life is just a tiny, tiny blip on the timeline of eternity. Okay? So you are, if you are a Christian, you are a chosen resident alien. And this is true of whatever place you live and whatever culture you live. Even if you are a true follower of Jesus in Dallas, Texas, you will be a resident alien. Because Texas isn't just like sanctified <laughs> beyond all belief. Turns out they make some bad decisions with their money and their time and other things. So wherever you are, if you're in Africa or Europe or Asia or India, if you're in America or Brazil or Australia, if you're a Jew or a non-Jew, Peter is saying wherever you are and whatever place you are, whatever the culture looks like, if you are a follower of Jesus, you will be an exile, a resident alien, wherever you are. It's just true, but you're also chosen for that. So both of these are true for all Christians at all times in all places. Chosen exiles. There's no way around it. But note this. The order of those two words is so important. I taught them backwards just so that you'd remember that the order is important. Here's the order. Chosen or elect exile. So chosen resident aliens. Why is the order so important here? Uh, the first point. Who God says you are is always so much more important than who the world says you are. God says you're chosen. The world says you're a stranger. Do you believe that? Do you believe that who God says you are is so much more important than who the world says you are? If you do not believe that, you will be tossed to and fro by the waves, the trends, the opinions of this world and you'll go round and around and around in the wash. And you'll never be satisfied if you take what the world says about you as priority over what God says about you. You'll shift your own opinions. Your own morality will shift and turn. Your beliefs again and again will go this way and that because whatever you believe as a Christian will never be enough for the world. Because the world is actually always running on just being far enough away from the Jesus culture. In whatever culture, at whatever time that you're in. That's just how it works. So if you chase your reputation in the world over who God says you are, you, you'll, never, you'll never arrive. You will always feel like a stranger. So why not take what God says about you first? You're chosen. I've chosen you. I love you. Over this idea that you're a stranger. The second thing I'll say about the order of those words is that we're really talking about identity here. And if you take the second word first as your identity, being an exile, being a stranger, rather than that I'm chosen, this will be 
if you take that as your primary identity, your posture towards the world will always be one of defensiveness. You will always be feeling like this is too hard. You will always feel disorientation and not hope. You will always feel like life is too much. Rather than if you take chosen, loved, saved as your primary identity, you will still feel those things, but that will not be the way you present yourself to the world. Instead, you'll present to the world as one loved, known, secure, safe, and the world will see that hope, and the world will wonder where it came from, because they'll also notice that you're kind of strange, <laughs> and they'll see the persecution, and they'll see that it's hard. And so, so make sure you get the order right. Chosen or elect exiles. Both are true, but one is primary. You are chosen for love by God. Now, uh, Peter later in, in the book will say, and here's the thesis of his letter in, in 4.19. This could be the thesis of the whole letter, the whole book of 1 Peter. Therefore, let those who suffer, and they're suffering because they're resident aliens, they're outsiders to the, to the, to the larger culture, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's the whole thesis of the book. And it centers around this idea that you will always feel the pain and the suffering of being an outsider to a culture that generally does not want to bend the knee to Jesus. That was true of Peter's day. That's true of our day. So let's now shift from that idea of elect exiles, chosen resident aliens, and now look at the other qualifying terms that Peter uses. And I want you to pay close attention to the prepositions at the very beginning of these. So the first, the first phrase goes like this. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to is a preposition, and that's a past action according to the foreknowledge of God. So you have been chosen to be exiles, chosen for love according to the foreknowledge of God. Here's the way I want, we could talk a lot about what does foreknowledge mean and, and people get all worked up. I don't care about that. Here's what you need to know about foreknowledge. Here's what Peter is trying to remind you of. God loved you first. He loved you first. And oftentimes we don't see that God has chosen to love us until we choose to love him. And then we look back on it and we're like, wow, he's been pursuing us for quite some time. Okay, can you raise your hand if that's your experience? That after you chose to love God, you realized, oh, I didn't act first, he did. His foreknowledge is his choosing act to love you. We must remember this. Um, for this reason. In the same way that his plan for drawing us into a loving relationship with himself included forbearance and perseverance and long-suffering as we time and time again pushed him away, went around him, refused to acknowledge him, in the same way that, that he did that for us, 
His plan, as we'll see, to sanctify us, to make us holy like He is holy, to separate us from sin and the desires of this world will require our perseverance. So He is giving us foreknowledge of what we must endure so that we might become what he has intended for us. Just like he foreknew that loving us would be hard, he's telling us becoming what he has uh, desires for us to become, which is sanctified, holy like he is holy, will be discomforting, will be disorienting, will be painful and challenging. But he wants you to know, I did this for you. I persevered for you. Now you will need to persevere for the sake of our relationship. This must happen, God says. Pain, suffering that comes with being a resident alien will be a part of your status as a chosen one of God. And so God is behind it all. His foreknowledge sees it. This is his plan. Accept it. Second phrase. In the sanctification of the Spirit. In the sanctification of the Spirit. This is a present reality. So God has, in his foreknowledge, chosen us in, in the past. The present reality is he has given us the Spirit to sanctify us. Sanctification means, as I said already, to make holy as God is holy, to be without evil, without sin, without darkness, which is to be set apart from this world, the old life, from disobedience and and rebellion against God to the new life of obedience and righteous living. And this separation is from the sin of the world, but as he says, it is not separation from the people of this world. So that is what God is giving you the Spirit for, to make you holy. Now, do you think it will be easy or hard to be sanctified? Hard. It is going to be impossibly hard. It is going to be so hard that you cannot do it apart from the Spirit of God. And God knew that. He foreknew that. And his plan, therefore, was to give you the power of the Spirit, which is the third person of the triune God. He was going to send it to you so that you might have what you need to be sanctified. And that sanctification will enable you to be obedient to Christ, as we'll see, is what you were created for. That should be comforting. That God wants to set you apart, but he has not left you alone to do it in your own power. You have a helper walking through this life with you if you don't resist him if you let him work in you, if you learn to hear his voice drawing you and guiding you and helping you have perseverance even through the hardest trials of life. Okay, next phrase. Look at the preposition, for. For, now we're talking about future purpose. This is for language. For obedience to Jesus Christ. So God in his foreknowledge has chosen to love you and to call you to himself. He's given you the Holy Spirit so that you don't have to do it alone, what he has planned for you. And what does he have planned for you? He has obedience to Jesus Christ planned for you. Is that where you thought he was going? 
Peter is saying we are created and chosen and called for obedience to Jesus Christ. This seems strange. If this is all God wanted, why didn't he create robots who would never disobey? If that's all he cared about, and the answer is love. There has to be a real opportunity to disobey so that obedience can be our love to God. And why is obedience to Christ received by God as love? Because God's love language is trust. Whoever you obey is who you trust. If you only ever obey yourself, you trust yourself. If you obey Jesus Christ and all he has commanded, it shows that you trust him. And God receives that as trust. To obey is to trust, particularly in the disorientation of pain and suffering and persecution, which is always what cultural outcasts and exiles will experience. So to obey God in the face of persecution, in the face of being called strange, in the face of looking different, is actually a greater act of love than if everybody's already doing it. So you have a chance to show your love to God in a city like this in a way that maybe the people of Dallas, Texas don't. Doesn't mean it's easy. Your obedience is made possible by the sanctifying spirit empowering you to obey Jesus Christ no matter what you're going through, no matter the pushback, no matter how strange it makes you feel, and God receives that as your love for him, particularly when you're looking really weird in a culture. And guess how the culture or people of the culture respond when they see you doing that? They do think you're weird, but they also sense a power that they can't understand of why in the world you'd, you'd do that. Why, why would you do that? And do you see what happens? You bring the name and the person and the work of Jesus Christ, you lift it up by your obedience because they say, it must be real. If they're willing to live like this in the face of this, you are declaring Jesus Christ is worthy of it all that he is so beautiful that to not consider him would be so foolish. If, if these people live like this, if they choose to live like this, even if it's going to end in them burning on Nero's stakes, that's who Peter's writing to. People are literally being burned alive because they refuse to stop obeying Jesus. And when we in the face of our enemies mocking and criticizing our belief in Jesus, criticizing that as crutch or opioid or superstition or primitive thinking, whatever it is for us, when we continue to choose to follow him, we lift up, which is to say we glorify the name of Jesus Christ. That's why this is our purpose. Now, the next phrase, 
and for sprinkling with his blood. Okay, this is strange. Why not just leave it at obedience? This is, a, this is brilliant. There's three possible Old Testament allusions that Peter's using here. Sprinkling of blood happened in the Old Testament for three different things. Establishing a covenant with, with saying, inviting people into the covenant community of God. It could be for uh, entrance into the priesthood for priests in uh, Israel. And the third option is that it was cleansing from leprous skin disease. Now, it could be that Peter's alluding to kind of all of these because all of these are at some way a part of his letter. But I think it's this third, cleansing from leprous skin disease. And here's why Peter brings this up. Peter knows better than any of us because he had some egregious sin against God. He turned his back on Jesus, if you know his story. He denied him three times after Jesus' death. He knows more than anyone that even though Christians have the Spirit empowering them to obedience, every Christian in this life will fail to love God through perfect obedience. We will disobey. We will give in to cultural pressure. We will feed our ungodly desires and appetites. We will, we will fall short. And guess what? We won't lose God's favor. Well, why? Because, Peter reminds us, that every time we sin, every time we fall short of obedience to God, the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us on Calvary is sprinkled on us for forgiveness of those sins, past, present, and future. As we try to live fully empowered by the Spirit to obedience to Christ, we will mess up. And when we do, we turn to Jesus, we beg for forgiveness, and he applies his blood to us afresh every time. And therefore, we are not removed from fellowship with God or fellowship with other believers. Now, why is this also part of the purpose? Why is it for obedience and for sprinkling? It's, it's both because both do the same thing. They lift up and glorify Jesus Christ. When I obey him and do what he says because I'm trusting in him, it shows him to be of utmost worth and value. When I fall short and I feel shame and I turn to him and he forgives me and I no longer feel shame, he's lifted up. His cross is lifted up. And so... This is why we don't run to the hills and build compounds out in the middle of nowhere and hide away from the evil culture, but instead we start a church in the middle of one of the most uh, unchurched cities in America where we'll look very strange by following the way of Jesus. We don't run because we don't need to be afraid of disobedience because if we fall short, if the culture tempts us and we give in to temptation, we have a Savior who is quick to forgive. So we need not fear disobedience. We need not break friendships with those who would tempt us otherwise. We stay where God has planted us and we move forward knowing that for obedience we bring him glory and with the sprinkling of blood we bring him glory. And this dual action of obedience and the sprinkling of blood creates a very unusual group of people that is particularly effective in showing a counter community to both hyper-religious 
people and hyper-irreligious people. Here's how that works. When hyper-religious people see the way that we stay in the city and live in the city as a counterculture, and uh, they see that when we fall short, our community is not a place of shame, they are like, what? Every other hyper, whatever religion it is, could be a Christian, a form of Christianity. Any hyper-religious system that sees a community where people are falling short of obedience and yet it is not overcome with shame, that is a counter-community. Now, for those who are hyper-irreligious and they see us still wanting to live in obedience to an ancient scripture, to a man who lived and died 2,000 years ago, that too reeks of something different. And people will have to ask the question, why is this community is this way? A community of obedience and a community of forgiveness and grace. And the answer is Jesus Christ. He is behind it all. So, if you remember these five things, you too can make it in this city. Um, you can make it in this church. If this church feels disorienting to you, you can persevere in this church. If the city outside these walls feels strange and foreign to you, you can make it in this city. You can persevere with whatever form of disorientation or discomfort you have. And you can do that because... Jesus shows you the way. Jesus himself is the one who came from his heavenly home to be an exile and a stranger in a strange land of unholiness and ungodliness. And he chose to do that and he chose to live amongst us. And he was considered weird and he was ridiculed for it. And when he refused to conform to his culture, but obey his Father in heaven. Instead, it led to his physical, emotional, and spiritual persecution and eventually his death on a Roman cross. And that was all part of God's loving plan as well. To reveal himself to us, to bring his people home, he put on the discomfort of being the outsider. And so we can do it too. We can persevere and, and if, if church feels weird to you and this feels like a weird culture, persevere through that so that you might learn about and find Jesus. And we will do our best to take off any unnecessary wrappings of cultural Christianity so that we can focus on Jesus and not, not make it extra weird when it doesn't need to be weird. We just want you to know Jesus we hope this year can be a year where you can persevere in the discomfort wherever that comes from you and move towards Jesus and follow Jesus and learn about Jesus and worship Jesus. And so I'll finish where the introduction uh, to Peter's letter leaves off. May God's grace and God's peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for choosing us. We thank you for believing in us, for thinking that we're worth it, that you 
came from your home to live in this world, to live that perfect life of obedience that we all fail to live so that you might be the perfect sacrifice and take upon yourself the punishment for all sin, past, present, and future, and then give to us through faith the opportunity to be cleansed by your blood. God, may we become people that live for our purpose, which is both to obey you and your word in our life, and also when we fall short, to quickly turn back to you and receive your forgiveness and grace as you cover us with your blood, as you apply the payment that you made for our sin time and time again. Let us be this kind of people, this kind of community, a community of obedience and a community of repentance and forgiveness. It's in Jesus' name we pray.